Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm quivering with anguish and near-terminal oh, despair. No, I'm just oh, kidding. My. But uh, I am having fun uh, today. I've uh, been experimenting with a voice recognition program that one of my AI friends has sent me. And the issue at hand is how the system negotiates vocabulary and syntax versus tone and inflection. And when you think about it, I mean, <laughs> that's a lifelong challenge for us all. Uh, yeah. And it's very interesting how that works. Uh, my brief <laughs> from my friend was to uh, to take this a bit more seriously than lewd comments to Siri. <laughs> so <laughs> I've been trying to work out uh, on it. And uh, it, it's interesting. It's interesting how... Uh, it responds, but I think this is part of uh, our future, uh, mm -hmm. part of your mm -hmm. your son's future. I, I suggest. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know, but it's been fun. It's been fun. So you're testing it for tone and inflection. That has always seemed to me to be the next. Like, how do you get a computer or an AI to recognize sarcasm? It seems That's, like it would be really hard. Well, that is a crucial, crucial touchstone, of course. Sarcasm, anger. Uh, irony is, is a little bit too complex because I think we use that term too broadly. Um, but that, that really is the challenge. That is exactly what's going on. And when you have only your voice to work with, and I mean, remember that... that Right as of this moment, there are teachers facing classrooms all over the country and the world. We're just talking through now, you know, and it's really, yep. really difficult. Um, yep. We don't have uh, the paralinguistic, um, you know, possibilities of hand gestures and body language. So getting the, a, a system, an AI system, to really respond. To, well, first of all, to interpret and to respond is is very, very tricky. And it's it's an interesting way of thinking about the complexities that we all face and take completely for granted uh, mm -hmm. because we feel we're pretty fluent at it, right? We hope. Yeah, I think that people think that they're more fluent in it than they realize. I have a bad habit of, in my online discourse, of people... I guess it's not my habit, it's other people's problem, but of people thinking that I'm serious when I'm joking and joking when I'm serious. And I don't know how to get the tone right on Twitter if there are some people who are really good at it. And I think what it comes down to is actually being a bit more explicit. I think the more dry your humor is in real life, the less translatable it is. But that brings up an interesting point because we're talking about AI here, and I immediately went to living, breathing human beings understanding of online discourse. And I didn't even realize that I was doing that, right? The lines between these things are getting fuzzier and fuzzier as time goes on. It, it truly is. I think this is happening exponentially. Um, but, you know, the situation that you describe in terms of being, you know, really 180 degrees difference misunderstood 
John Cage once said that about you know about music. He said, you know, when I when I set out to write a serious, moving piece of music, people would often, you know, sometimes even laugh. And when I would mm -hmm. try to do something, you know, conceptually sort of silly or challenging mm -hmm. of of musical uh, semantics, uh, they would instantly think profound and deep. And he said, you know, <laughs> I decided that what I was going to have to do was have a different reason for composing any kind of music, you know? It, and, and what reason was that? Basically self-interest self yeah, or... Yeah, yeah okay. pretty yeah, much. I mean, it, it, it was kind of an undermining of the idea of like, well, communication is what the other you know person understands. It's like, well, yes, that is practically mm -hmm. speaking true, but, but that mm -hmm. may not mm -hmm. be the best intentional stance to begin you know, any mm -hmm. kind of creative projection, you know, of any kind, whether it be an, a work of art or a declarative statement or even a question. I, I think questions are yeah. effective because people can at least hear that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But then again, I mean, you could ask a really simple question. This happens to me all the time. I ask a, what was, to my mind, a really innocent, practical question, and people go, oh, <laughs> it's like... Yeah, 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 right. No, it always seemed to me also online that I would get in the most trouble the more careful I would try to be. Oh, if nice. Bold, if I made a bold, unequivocal statement online, people would occasionally disagree, but they would back off a bit. It was almost like I was a monkey that had raised my, my paws up above my head, right, to make myself look bigger. But if I came out and I said, now I understand the complexities of this issue and I'm going to come down on this or that side of it, that's when people smelled blood. They're like, he's weak and we can we can tear him up. But going back to the John Cage and the fact and the idea that art is meant to communicate in some way, shape, or form, there's a great Byung-Chul Han quote from his book, The Disappearance of Rituals. I'm on a huge kick with this guy lately. If you've been listening to the show, I think I've brought him up the past three times. But he says that what, uh, what we have uh, now is communication without community, and what you want is community without communication. And so I think Ooh, that... It, that's beautiful. It, in terms of a concert, especially if it's someone like John Cage, but really any concert... Is there communication going on or is community happening? And I think that that's an important distinction. All the, you know, worthless noise that goes on online, very little signal buried somewhere deep, deep, deep within it. We're communicating without community. And that's, that's a serious problem right now. I think we're going to have to come back to that uh, several mm -hmm. times and from many different angles, because I think when you blow that up, from the personal and the interpersonal level to a societal and cultural level, uh, that's a huge part of the problem that is going mm -hmm. on, really. And it's it's very well said. I think that's a good introduction to uh, to where we want to go with this episode. Where do we want to go? You want to start us off? Yeah, just quick. There are a couple of things. I, I'd like to acknowledge three of our uh, regular and even devoted listeners who, who really had some great feedback on our last episode, which uh, examined the Gabby uh, Pepito story and the, the tragedy, the summer murder now tragedy that we know. Um, one, uh, Diane Karajanakis wanted to follow up on the domestic abuse side an abusive relationship and some of those angles 
And I think that is certainly relevant um, and, and important. Uh, Andy Dugas, Haiku Andy in San Francisco, uh, tipped me off to more of the cultural background on the Gen Z van life movement. And it, it really, I think, qualifies as a movement. And that's a certainly you know valid and, and, and relevant point. And then uh, Sierra Locke, who's a, a, a good and very interesting younger listener, uh, pointed out another uh, case. It's, it's a crime case, uh, and that's the connection. Uh, the Elizabeth Holmes uh, Silicon Valley corruption trial, which is in progress now. Um, all of those are, are really you know on the beam and, and show that I think that people connected with the last episode and we really really uh, appreciate that feedback Dave and I are very keen on building community and not just uh, exchanging communications those are really good ideas that we'll look at and and we do appreciate people uh, checking us out and, and giving us feedback and sometimes we'll just have to put that in the file and and think about how that might um, flow through to other episodes. I think one takeout is is possibly to look at interesting crime examples. David is a crime writer and crime publisher, and I've dabbled in that genre myself. So we are interested in, in these kinds of topics, and we do appreciate that feedback. But uh, we have another topic in mind uh, for this week, and it is also topical, and, and we'll get around to... Uh, to why it's particularly appropriate for this week, but it relates to a question that I have uh, faced from students uh, over the last few years. Uh, it, it comes up often, uh, it, and it's intensified at different times, but their, their query to me has been, what is the relationship between the activist movement of the counterculture in 1960s and 70s how does that relate to the activist, woke, progressive, quote-unquote, culture of today? And I think that's a very interesting question, and I, I've, I've tried to explore that with these uh, younger thinkers. And one way I thought would be interesting, David, was to look at one figure uh, from that era, uh, a writer, and, and the link here for this week is, is the Banned Books Week celebration, which is something I've had a lot to do with. But I thought we might ask the question about where would Hunter Thompson be in today's frame? I mean, he was considered a real counterculture hero. He was a writer who became a celebrity. And I think many people who know about his career would say he became kind of a victim of that persona and celebrity mm -hmm. but he was you know a serious legitimate cultural critic and and political writer i think his book fear and loathing on the campaign trail 72 Fantastic. is mm -hmm. is a very underrated classic of american satire and serious social political analysis so what about that as a general frame of trying to look at two social movements that are separated by a substantial number of years. But many mm -hmm. people do put forward the idea that there is a relationship and that one 
what we're living through right now is some kind of uh, extension as opposed mm-hmm. to a mutation or, taking a harsh view, a betrayal of the counterculture movement of the 60s and 70s. Can I throw that back to you as to get your feedback on that as an approach? I think that's a great approach. Hunter Thompson is one of my heroes. I started uh, reading his stuff because I saw the Johnny Depp movie, uh, the Terry Gilliam, I believe, directed. Was it Terry Gilliam? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, So I got all of his books, and by got, I mean that I was 13 years old, and I went to Borders back when those existed, and I sat in those big comfortable chairs and read them for free (laughs) and then put them back on the shelf. Um, I think that Hunter Thompson is a compelling figure when you're talking about the difference between the counterculture of the 60s and 70s and what we have today because, very specifically because I feel like, I feel like he would have been canceled a long time ago. Um, so I think that we would have a real kind of Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court but backwards kind of thing. Like right. if you took this, that. this in, or maybe, maybe a better example is the uh, Encino man. I don't know if you remember this movie where they, they thaw out a caveman in Encino and he hangs out with a bunch of surfers. And the comedy is that he doesn't understand the social mores of the time. So it would be interesting to, first of all, think about what it was that Hunter Thompson stood for politically, how he expressed those ideals and then what are some of the affects or um, you know, perhaps controversial views that he would hold that would get him into trouble today? Because I think that when we're talking about woke progressive, um, what's the third word that you used there? It was woke, woke progressive. Oh, I guess activism was the third world word, which I don't think it really is. Um, what we're really seeing is a movement that continuously cuts its most interesting voices out of the conversation before they can really get going, uh, and as such leaves an opening for uh, astroturfed corporate in- interests to fill the void. Because nobody on this planet, the same way that, you know, it's like a human, it's like Kasparov versus the computer, right? No human activist on this planet can match the political correctness and ability to dance between sensitive issues like a good corporate, you know, sensitivity board. You know what I mean? This kind of middle management type thing. Right, right. So I think I think that a good place to start, what is what's your impression of Hunter Thompson's politics, first of all? What was was he what was he for the time? And what do you think he would be considered today and we can just we can you know say that this is you know obviously we're speculating but i think it would be helpful to um to try to put some labels on him okay you might not like that i'll just say at the start that i think that your uh analogies of of the connecticut yankee and the encino man are incredibly apt because one of his uh interesting one of his many interesting lines uh, had to do with the idea of being born both ahead and behind your time, which he called a real mm-hmm. trick. And I think that's mm-hmm. very, very apt in, in looking at his position. Uh, how would I describe his politics? I would say, and I think that he, 
used similar sorts of, of, of phrasing, was that he was a hillbilly bleeding heart liberal. Uh, mm -hmm. He was a radical conservative and standard bearer and a radical freak break down all the barriers, uh, hate corruption, uh, mm -hmm. work things out on a very, you know, situational basis. Um, I think, I think he was very conflicted. He, you know, he came from Louisville. He, uh, he was a troublemaker from the get go. He was a mixture of, uh, humorist and, and very embittered, uh, satirist from the, from the beginning, mm -hmm. but an incredibly mm -hmm. disciplined writer before, you know, the drugs and alcohol really took hold. And even with them, uh, I wrote a piece describing him as uh, a hyperbolist extraordinaire, a mutant uh, hybrid of Lovecraft, H.L. Mencken, Kerouac, and Captain Haddock from Tintin. Mm. And I think that's mm. very appropriate. But uh, let's, to look at his politics, let's look at his actual run uh, for sheriff in Aspen. Mm -hmm the freak right. power uprising, so to speak. Um, I mean, he put forward an agenda or an electoral platform uh, that was very interesting. I mean, it included uh, drug legalization, which is not surprising for him and for the Times. Uh, but his footnote to that is, uh, any drug worth using shouldn't be sold for money. Uh, he also advocated for both half seriously and very seriously for the name Aspen to be changed officially to Fat City so that it might discourage exploitation. And when he listed the possible exploiters, it is a very ecumenical group. It includes, you know, corporate greed, mining, timber, all those sort of things. But it also includes a lot of folks that we would uh, associate with, say, cities like Missoula, Montana, who are coming from a very, you know, green or apparently green uh, point of view. They're still exploiting the name and the brand. And he felt that Aspen needed to be uh, demolished as a brand and let, left be to be a town, you know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. those are some of the angles that, but I, I think that if you wanted one word uh, to define his political orientation, and I think his artistic life orientation, uh, idiosyncratic. Yeah, idiosyncratic. Well, it sounds to me like he's an actual human being because I think that, when you are assembling the things that you believe as a person, you're necessarily bringing a lot of baggage to the table and you're bringing a lot of life experience, things that you've read, people that you've met. And on occasion, some of those ideas might seem to contradict each other, but I think it's important for everybody to have some basic principles, right? And I love that you said that he hated corruption and believed in freak power uprising because if there's any binary that I subscribe to in my own political life it's that I too hate I hate the corrupt and I hate the the machinations of the powerful right I won't go so far as to say that I hate the rich I have friends who are rich they're 
relatively normal besides their strange ability to pay $35 to have KFC delivered to their house. Uh, but, but they're not, but they're not bad people. But I think that, uh, the, the freak power uprising really resonates with me too these days, because as we've said on this show, no, actually, I think I might've said it on a different show. So I'll say it here now. I love freaks. I've always loved freaks. And I think that what has happened is that these two groups that Hunter Thompson uh, alternatively loved and and despised, depend like respectively, I guess you should say, have kind of merged together, right? The corrupt corporate forces of America have weaseled their way into the freak cadre and have set about normalizing it in a way that makes it completely bloodless and toothless, right? So I'm against that entirely. I want the freaks to stay freaks. I want the weirdos to stay weirdos. I want them to be different. I want people to be different. And if there's one thing about idiosyncratic writers, number one, right now they're in very short supply. But number two, they're extremely necessary. You know, we need more crazy people. I mean, at a certain time, at a certain period in time, we had people like Hunter Thompson and even Alex Jones, right? Like these these crazy, loud, uh, conspiratorial, whatever their political ideals might be, these kind of wrote... And now, of course, you know, Alex Jones is not the same and Hunter Thompson is dead, but I, I wish we had more people like that, people who just had middle fingers for, for everybody who would stamp down on individual freedom and the ability for communities to uh to be communities well i couldn't agree more i mean i i think thompson is joined by uh you know uh, many other people but 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 writers that we could look at you know william burroughs again a very you know major counterculture figure uh a drug user gay but also a gun lover uh, I mean, yep. there um, there are many, many people who were heroes of the time who I think would face uh, problems, not only from the right, which is kind of where I grew up expecting all censorship and difficulty to yes. come from. But now it's coming from a very perverted uh, reverse mirror version of the left. And I think what we're looking mm-hmm. at, I mean, what could be weirder? really, that intense social pressure to conform to supporting nonconformity. I mean, wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't yeah. sound like freak power to me. That doesn't sound like freedom. That doesn't sound like respect. It sounds mm-hmm. very, very weird. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that is a real perversion of the counterculture years, not an extension or evolution or reboot. God, I hate that word mm. reboot. It drives me nuts. Um, yeah. But it's so apt today. And I, I think there really are more differences than there are similarities. And that's what I what I ended up you know, saying to my students and, and trying to explore how that mm-hmm. works. Because I, I just don't see um, I don't see a connection at all. I, I think that you're right in saying that Thompson would have been canceled uh, a lot earlier. I mean, he just wouldn't have gotten off the ground. 
you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah. I mean, I wonder about a lot of careers. I mean, would Camille Paglia really get started today? Um, mm. I mean, we can't seem to tolerate anyone who really has any substance as opposed to surface in terms of what they're saying. And the key thing, I think, is that we can't tolerate it on college campuses around America, right. at least. Right. I mean, that is... I, I saw Thompson on, on two campuses. Uh, I, I got to see almost every major radical feminist of the time. I got to see Angela Davis and Bobby Seale and... There were, and G. Gordon Liddy and, you know, William F. Buckley Jr. It was a just a meeting ground spear park of, of strangeness and energy exchange, which we now disallow from the start. Mm-hmm. So if I'm hearing you correctly, would you say that there is there was no analog to cancel culture in the 60s and 70s counterculture movement? Not the way that I think of, of cancel culture today. No, I don't. And not in, there certainly was for starters, there wasn't the availability and instantaneous nature of social media, and the anonymity of that. So I think there is a mechanism here. Uh, this is in part a tool-driven uh, degeneration as opposed to evolution, rather than just a conceptual shift. Um, mm-hmm. But. I don't think every I don't think that Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and all these things can be blamed for everything. Um, I don't think that there would have been the possibilities or even the thought of of, of cancellation um, mm-hmm. then. I mean, I, I, I it just drew more audience. It, it created more debate. It was something to talk over with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. It was something maybe to have fights about. You know? Yeah, yeah. I've seen a lot of uh, footage from that time of people showing up to this. And when the the floor opens for questions, you often see young students yelling at the speaker, you know, yelling there. And I, by the way, I think that's great. I don't think that's cancellation at all. I think that's how things are supposed to work. But what you're talking about, where people talk to each other and bat ideas back and forth and yeah maybe get mad maybe people have falling outs right a falling out is not a cancellation you know but i think that uh thinking that there are ideas that are superior to other ideas and also thinking that there are ideas that are so abhorrent that they need to not exist i think is very different i i, I could see this from the start i will say i was pretty prescient when this really started happening around 2012 And I started realizing that this was going to get out of hand really quickly because you start with the actual Nazis and racists, right? People who have an enormous swastika on their uh, their Twitter profile or something, right? And they are really about Europa and, you know, returning to tradition and things like that. And you see people go after them and it's like, okay, but what happens when you run out of those people, right? Because you're going to keep wanting to do this and you're going to have to get more and more loose with your definition of what a white supremacist actually is because you've gotten rid of them all, right? Which goes back to our whole idea of the kind of disease of progressivism, namely that it always has to progress and it never knows when when to rest. But uh, I wanted to say something that I got off track about. You were talking about this. Oh, right, right, right. As a interesting thought experiment i wonder what would have happened if 
in, you know, the civil rights era, what would social media have done to that? You know, how quickly would the CIA have been able to co-opt that for their own, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. might be alive today because they could have cut his legs off before he got anywhere. You know what I mean? Like, well, we have some problematic footage of, you know, of him philandering or whatever, which is a, I'm not sure if that's true, but I know that's a rumor, but they would have been able to get his ass really quick before he could do anything at all. Well, you know, you mentioned one very simple word and one of my deep uh, intellectual commitments is that there are no such things as simple words. And Mm -hmm. the word was just idea. And I think if we look at what the real problem is, is that our notion of an idea today is so degenerative, it's, it's kind of pathetic. You know, mm-hmm. people really did have arguments and disputes, not just about social policies and, and very major macro issues. They really embraced ideas and I, I challenge anyone to really put forward, what are the ideas of our time? What are, the, are the, the ideas that are coming through, particularly from a progressive left filter? I mean, these are the people who, and I've been one of them, you know, we were the ones to claim the intellectual high ground, the artistic high ground, not just the moral high ground, which is kind of a boring high ground and a weird place to try to defend, uh, you know, and, and, you know, no fortress, no siege, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you're going to do that, well, okay. But I, I don't see these great ideas that, that people are wrangling about. I see a real basic principle today of identity. And today you work out who you are by who you dislike. And then yeah. Yeah. you propose that they have launched some sort of attack on you so you don't look paranoid. Well, okay, that's a good rhetorical strategy if you're like, you know, eight years old. Um, right. But we tolerate that at a very high level of intellectuality and media power and entertainment power. I mean, would we then have heard constantly from this the... the the C-list celebrities who are quoted every day in our mainstream media. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Yeah, and I I think that the, the lack of ideas is really telling. If you were to ever press these people, uh, you know, you could say something to the effect of, well, what do you believe, right? I believe in, well, I believe that the the uh, the litany of the progressive, right? I believe science is real, racism is bad, the police are corrupt, you know, on down the list. And it's like, oh, okay, okay. So those those are your beliefs, and that's that's totally fine. But what are your ideas? What do you what do you think we should do about those things? <clears throat> Apparently. Well- you know, those are a little bit really harder to put in a window in an apartment building or to have out in the front <laughs> lawn. That's the problem with that, David. Right, right, exactly. It's like, well, and the problem with all of these beliefs, right, is that they don't, they they have no leg to stand on once you kind of 
scratch the surface. I think we've done a good job in several episodes in talking about the whole, you know, science is real thing. Okay, what, what do you mean by that? First of all, what do you mean by science? Second of all, what do you mean by real, right? Racism is bad. Oh, okay, okay. Well, what what does racism mean to you, right? Is it racist policies? Is it individual racism between people? Because you'll often find people go back and forth depending on how well it fits their rhetorical strategy, right? I'm not committing blasphemy here. I'm not saying that racism is good. I'm just saying that when you when you poke at people like this, they don't they're very unclear about what they mean about these things, right? And it's we live right now in such an individualized neoliberal regime, right? Where all of these identities have been sold to for the past decade and kind of propped up, right? That basically ideology boils down to whoever I feel was mean to me the most recently, right? And I truly believe that people couch these things in rhetoric that is popular for the time, but my contention is that people don't actually believe any of the stuff that they're saying deep down, deep down, as a, as a principle, right? As a principle. You can, you can think about... Uh, the rhetoric of, um, you know, my body, my choice, right? Well, I don't know if that really goes as far as people think that it does, right? It definitely does when it pertains to things like abortion, but maybe not so much on some other things that are going on at the moment. Oh, like Do you see what I mean? Like there's, yeah, I was dancing around it. <laughs> but yes, like vaccination, exactly, right? Well, and then you get the, the argument back that like, well, but it affects me and, you know, and, and, but does it, does it, I mean, does it really, does it really, and couldn't you argue, couldn't you argue that abortion affects another person, um, a very, very specific person, nominally the one who's being aborted, right? Um, anyway, not to get too into that, I did end up committing blasphemy, even though I said I wasn't, wasn't going to. I wanted to, uh, give you a chance to respond, but I do want to get to Banned Books Week, because I think that that's a good tie-in to everything that we're talking about right now. Yeah, and I, I think we can look at this from a couple of points of view. I, it's something I've been involved with I, 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 with uh, when I was involved with the ACLU, and I, I've kind of gone off them for many reasons. Uh, but I, I have participated in uh, festival events that look at banned books. And uh, to flash back to an earlier episode where uh, I went to see the Patti Smith concert, at the Henry Miller Memorial uh, Library in Big Sur, which is a fabulous uh, chapel enclave of many of the the core values that that we're kind of lamenting are 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 really past or or paid lip service because I I read uh, some of, of Tropic of Cancer at an event at the Clark main Clark County Library here in Las Vegas and. I mean, frankly, it was it was pretty tame, you know. Really, it expressed uh, a male heterosexual position in a very flamboyant way. I was shocked that anyone was all that shocked. But out of I think a panel of ten uh, writers who had chosen pieces to share, that was the only one that prompted people walking out and getting responses back to the library. And everyone was quite happy that they weren't, you know, they thought, well, look, you know, we got to defend him because, you know, we did ask to, you know, look at banned books. 
But I think what's weird about right now is that we have some books that are banned or heavy criticism and, and a, a very vicious form of, of criticism coming from both the right and the left. And mm-hmm. uh, my, a writer friend of mine, Jonathan Evison, has just has been in trouble the last week or so with a novel called Lawn Boy. He's taken a lot of abuse from right-wing sides. I have a couple of other writer friends who have taken heavy abuse and been canceled by the left. I mean, mm-hmm. as they say in football games, let the players play, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah, don't throw yeah. a flag at every movement. And, and yeah. I, this offense culture, you know, everyone being offended all the time, uh, it, it just has lost potency, you know? I mean, I'm trying to think of what I could possibly be listening to that would offend me so badly that I would walk out of something. Probably if uh, Dennis Cooper was reading one of his more intense passages, I might take a break, especially having a young child at home. I don't know if you've read Frisk or The Sluts or any of Cooper's work, really. He's one of my favorite writers. But man, oh man, is Frisk ever... It is intense with child rape and, and abuse, and it's it's intense. And I, if you caught me at a weird time, I might not necessarily sit through it, because uh, I might think, you know, well, I could I got better things to do with my time. But it would have to be something that extreme, I think. What about you? Would you walk out of a reading for anything? Uh, not if I was already there. No, right. I mean, I, I, I think uh, you <laughs> that's know, a great answer. It's like, well, well, I'm here, so yeah. I mean, why, no, why on earth would I leave? I, I've I've taken a pledge somewhere. I can't remember what midnight, you know, in the dark of the moon, and and what skull full of blood, you know, was involved. But I, I took the pledge to to be open minded, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't want to violate that because I'm afraid that the uh, the spiders of eternal damnation and black magic will overtake me and mm-hmm. I'll have to say, well, I asked for it. Um, mm-hmm. But but I think there's something really important in terms of the, the audience and the demographics involved. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure that children should be exposed to the same material that adults should. I mean, I actually mm-hmm. am old school, and I believe that there is a distinction between children, adolescents, young adults, and adults. And I mm-hmm. think we have those marketing categories as some, you know, dim and corrupt version of, of a cultural understanding that you and I have lamented in earlier uh, episodes regarding, you know, initiation rights. Um, but there is a distinction, and uh, I'll give you a good example that um, just by, I don't know if I mentioned this on an earlier show, I, I, I haven't in other contexts, but just by chance, I remembered an old favorite book from my elementary school, and because it's the Bay Area and California, I knew they would be online, and I knew that they would, you know, maybe be able to have access to that online so i just wanted to check and see if it was there in the library and it was 
But in going to the home page of my old elementary school, I discovered that Dan Savage, I think I have mentioned this before, but I think it's appropriate again here. Dan Savage, the sex advice columnist for the Stranger magazine, a newspaper in, in Seattle, which has become syndicated. And he's recently just celebrated his 30th anniversary as a, a sex advice columnist. Uh, he was giving some sort of talk, presentation, about gender identity at the elementary school level. And there were bullet points about the issues being discussed. Well, as it turned out, the parents had not been consulted about those bullet points. And okay. I am not a prudish person by any standards. And I have a lot of sympathy with opening discussion even at young ages, but I think that has to be curated with more care and more respect than what was going on. And I think if we're going to have all of this discussion about whether or not we have a Halloween versus a harvest event in schools, well, I think we need to look at the sexual gender issues too. So all of those things are up for discussion. And I think there are so many forums for those to be discussed before action is taken. But mm -hmm. I mean, I, I was conflicted there. I mean, because I, I, I didn't want to, I don't want to be part of the censorship thing. I really don't. Uh, I, right. I want to let all right. of the, I want to let all of the monsters in and we'll sort them out as we go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's um, about where I would fall on that too. I really think that when it comes to some of the dicier subjects with regard to sex and gender, I just think that that's something that's between a kid and, and their parents. I think that kids should be allowed to ask any questions that they want. and But I just, I feel like we should let there's there's a certain level of maturity and readiness for information i think that individual kids have based on life experience who their parents are how open they are with their parents how much they've seen on tv etc cetera, etc cetera. and every every kid is different and just like the way that you wouldn't necessarily want to give a, you know a 12 year old a beer right uh, you might not want to introduce a 12-year-old to certain subjects. just might not be appropriate. And I think that age distinctions like that are really important, especially in a society, which this one is not, but especially in a society that might have actual initiation rituals, right? Like once you cross a threshold, you're now a grown-up, and you are privy to all these things that, that grown-ups know. Um, but I think that... Uh, when it comes to things like banned books, just to go back to an earlier point that you had there, it growing up, for me, it was the right that did this all the time. It was the right that didn't want you to listen to Marilyn Manson and thought that you know the devil would get you if you were reading all these certain books. I remember the first time I noticed that a book had been censored was when I checked out... Uh, the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn from my school library, and uh, a particular word had been blacked out over every time it appeared in the book. So somebody took a lot of time to do that, because I don't think they print 
the books with, with that word blacked out. Somebody had actually done that. And my librarian and my English teacher were both uh, elderly, church-going women, and they wanted to make sure that certain passages were, were excised from the text, and that never sat well with me. And I think that's always been in my brain. Um, I think growing up, especially as I did in Oklahoma, and having more left liberal leanings, I became very strongly anti-censorship. And now, again, I feel like I have no country, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know where to go. Where, where are the people who are both pro-free speech and also not actually uh, people who I disagree with on literally everything else? Do you see what I mean? It's, oh, it's hard. I do. <laughs> Believe me, I do. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. makes, it makes some strange bedfellows, right? If you have questions about things, if you, if you do have questions about, you know, gender and sexuality issues and, you know, the COVID crisis, the border, uh, you know, race relations in America, right? If you have sort of unorthodox thought, right? You, it's really hard to just talk about stuff, right? Which is why I'm glad that I've always had friends who I could talk to about this. You know, something that always, that I always come back to is around 2011, 2010 or something. I had a friend uh, who she was, uh, well, it's he now, she's trans, he's trans. And I remember always going to him for advice about this kind of burgeoning cancel movement, right? That which we both thought was was silly. Um, and he told me that, you know, th- these kids who are saying all this kind of stuff, they're just in college. You know, think about all the crazy stuff you said when you were in college. And of course, I was just out of college at the time. So it's not like this was ancient history. But I was like, oh, yeah, I was I was dumb. And I did grow up and I did get different ideas. But he was wrong. They didn't change. You know what I mean? Like they, they yeah. just graduated and got into positions of power and now it's uh now it's everywhere. And um I don't know. I don't want to ban books. I don't want to, you know, have this thing where I don't know, where where I feel like I can't just say something that might be a little clumsy, you know? Uh which I do anyway, and I get into plenty of trouble for it. You have to learn to like it <laughs> to a certain extent. <laughs> well, you used a phrase which is one of my favorites. It's a good old-fashioned one, but I think it really... Uh, I mean, to me, it's, it's an ideal. It's a goal. It's, a, it's, the, it's the whole point. Strange bedfellows. I mean, really, don't, isn't that what imaginative, intellectual, artistic, interesting, fumbling, human people really want do you really want all this agreement i mean jesus you know yeah. how you low to, is the self-esteem like, yeah exactly you want to be able to ad lib a little bit you know let's 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 inhabit different you know when a when a shaman puts on a on a deer skin and becomes a deer like that but for a republican can i do that can i code switch just a little bit and maybe it's not even a matter of playing devil's advocate it's just let me actually inhabit this idea for a little bit and have friends around me who love me and trust me enough to know that this is not a reflection on my on my on who I am, right? To know that that's one thing 
through all of my cancellations that I've been through in the past few years. I've maintained a core group of friends and I've, I've, I've asked them about it. And they're like, well, David, we, he's like, I asked a buddy about this the other day. He said, well, I know you. And they all say that they're like, well, but we know you and we know that's not you. Right. And, um, I don't know. I just have this ability to read a tweet or an essay by somebody and think to myself, well, you know, maybe that, that's not them. That's not the totality of who they are as a person. And um, I don't know. I think it's just a better way to live. It's a better way to uh, to navigate navigate the world. But it feels good to vent about this kind of thing. God, there's so much going on here. Well, I okay, in order, I think mm-hmm. your phrase, all my cancellations, has got to be a title of something of yours <laughs> at some point. I think that is just... <laughs> I'd want to read that. I think that's wonderful. I think there are a couple of ways to sort of uh, to uh, highlight uh, some of these issues and to also put them into focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned Huck Finn. I had a lot to do with resisting uh, the attempts which have now gone through to edit and to censor Huckleberry Finn. And I want listeners to know, if you have uh, read this so-called expurgated version, this new version, which is acceptable in PC terms, and you actually know anything about the novel, you know that the people involved with that process did not, did not do what they said they were going to do. They did more. They changed one word, the N-word, this code we have to, yes, but they also made many, many other minor, to them, changes, which completely flattens out Twain's beautiful fluency with the dialects going down the river, because it's a linguistic Mm -hmm. journey as well as a social and dramatic journey. Now, they didn't need to do that. They could have stuck to the brief that they had committed to, but they did not do that. And I think this is a legitimate concern about these PC censorship approaches, which are designed to you know, address a very specific topical issue uh, in terms of any kind of, of social, cultural group. The problem is it just doesn't end there. You know, and I think this is more than that slippery slope argument that the left always throws back that it's not really that. It's not well, yes, it is that. It is um, that. The the other thing I thought of, which I think is is really a, a hallmark of where we're at now, and this comes from my students, and I've I've got a little inventory. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about an AI sort of approach. Well, sort of group mind. Uh, can be helpful this way when you get a brainstorm list of things coming out. But one of the interesting things I thought about was, uh, and and it, 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 it came out of a couple of different classes, of this insistence on actors in roles, who they are. You know, Brian Cranston playing a disabled person. Well, he's not disabled, you know. We, we should be hiring, you know. Well, wait a minute, he's an actor. He's an actor, that's the whole point. Now, if the issue is about who gets work and as a practical financial matter, 
I understand that there is that. There is that. There's no question about it. But on the other hand, it's something really weird that, okay, if we have a blind role, we have to have a blind person. I mean, wait a minute. Uh, how does that work across? And then in writing, uh, you know, well, you can't be anyone that you're not, that you don't look like in the mirror. Well, sorry, that just closes down not just all contemporary literature possibilities, but the entire history of world culture, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It does that, and it also is a nefarious plot. Here, everybody put on your conspiracy theory hats, because here it comes. It's also a nefarious plot to get everybody on board with this neoliberal internalized master-slave dialectic that we all have, right? They want everybody to be a part of a kind of self-perpetuating identity system so that they can all be good consumers, right? So you have, uh, you, you want people involved in these kind of acting roles who are actually the, the thing that they purport to be, right? Well, what that really is doing, I think, I, th- I think at least, is taking away the whole acting and the creative aspect of the thing and instead creating this perpetual expression of their actual identity. There's a magic that goes on in the act of writing or in the act of acting uh, where you're being something that you're not, and that's important. But subliminally, no, you have to be the exact thing that you actually are, and we have to categorize that down to the very last, you know, sub, sub, sub genre of who you are, because we're not, we're not allowed to play or fake anymore because you have to be marketed to. And I think that some people might find that a bit tenuous, but it's totally true. They're turning the frogs gay with fluoride. Uh, what else are some good conspiracy <laughs> theories? But no, but I think I think whether it's a symptom or whether it's intentional or whatever, I, I think that's irrelevant. I think I think that it does have a lot to do with this whole uh, uh, butterfly categorization of people and and literal mindedness, right? That um, that really does play into this whole kind of you know put slotting people into easily marketable categories. That has to be a part of it, at least. I think this is really the underlying problem with this this direction uh, of this vector that we are writing now is that it, 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 or this is my problem with it, it isn't just the ideology. It's the, it's the crude, crass simplicity of mind. You know, it just yeah. flattens everything out. Flattens, yep, flattens everything out. Exactly. Sorry, continue, but yes, I Well, we, we lose dimensionality. We lose taste. We lose flavor. We lose spice. I mean, if, if diversity and inclusion is what, you know, the label says on it, well, why are we just crushing the living daylights out of everything and flattening the whole possibility for interaction and for real community? And uh, going back to the whole book thing, I, one uh, colleague who I really do admire, and, and she's feeling very, very embattled uh, right now. She's in a field that I, you couldn't pay me enough to be in, but she's certainly not being paid enough. She's in the YA category. Uh, 
Ooh, that's um, the worst one. Ooh, that's well, the worst one. I, for starters, why a? I mean that 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 uh, that little uh, label just is so infuriating. It's so bizarre. What does that mean? I mean, we have YA novels really consumed often by people we know who are in their 30s. And that's yeah. that's a little bit too weird for me. But yeah, strange. her point, uh, she got involved in a, in a discussion about the notion of, of censorship. Mm-hmm. And she said something I think that's very wise and, and is not considered often enough in this debate. She said censorship is not simply what you won't publish or what you deny access to. It is also what you promote and insist upon as your focus, as your priority. Mm-hmm. And I think that whole angle is really overlooked by people. I mean, it, it isn't just cancellation. That's bad enough. But it's mm-hmm. also a false prioritization of something that really, you know, should be reviewed and and given some chance to deepen and enrich, to steep a little bit, you know? Now we want instant coffee, instant food, instant everything. And we want instant acceptance and congruity with an ideological agenda that is really uh, puerile. Yeah, it's puerile, and I think I think it's also very base because I, I keep coming back to it. But I really do think that it's just to sell things to think to people better. You're not allowed to pretend to be anything that you're not. You're not allowed to explore things that you're not. Uh, you're not allowed to sit at the table and speak if you're not what they want you to be. Right? It's this whole mechanism of once again slotting people into categories, which oddly enough, it always it cuts both ways. I have a friend, a black author, who wrote a, a novel uh, that does not deal with black people at all. Um, and, you know, he said that he had a bit of trouble talking to agents and publishers about it because they're like, okay, we love the writing, we love the story, but uh, where are the, you know, you're black, so like, where are the black people in this story? He's like, well, I don't, I don't want to write that story right now. I'm writing this one. And so the knife cuts both ways, doesn't it? Right. I mean, you're, you're not allowed to, to go outside of your little box that they have you that they have you placed in your easily marketable box. And I just think that we should go back. I love freaks. I want freaks to come back. I want people to be OK with being weird again and being uncouth and saying things that are maybe not OK. Right. I mean, I, I just I grew up that way. Some of my best friends are, you know, people who I would consider to be freaks and I don't want them to be flattened out. I want them to be able to fly their freak flag for as long as they want to and and not get freaking slotted into this crap. Well, I want to chime in on, on the point that you mentioned about how this cuts both ways and not only limits uh, writers and artists of color, but I, I think it's immensely condescending to the point of, of, of brutality. I... Uh, had a private writing student uh, who I'm still very much in touch with, who experienced this very directly. This is this is not uh, an undergrad student. This is someone who's a very accomplished writer, I think. 
and was looking for a bit of fellowship and direction from a different point of view. He's black and he's gay and he didn't write a story or book about either of those two things. And he was absolutely flabbergasted by the treatment of a couple of major New York City editors because what they were saying is, you don't really seem black or gay enough, you know? And what, what his, his book is, it's from the point of view of a cat, okay? And it is absolutely a sensational bit of imaginative writing. I agree that it is, it, it is a literary fiction work. It doesn't fall into an obvious uh, category of, say, science fiction or crime. Uh, but it, it and the writing sentence by sentence is beautiful. No one mentioned that. No one mentioned that. What they were looking for is an intersectional story about you know black LGBTQ plus issues. And he, he just said, well, you know, I may get around to that. I have I have a few other pieces like that, but I, I kind of do that on a you know a short story or article sort of basis. And he said, I really don't feel an imaginative. Uh, call to action that I've been hired as a spokesperson or I've been elected. He said, there's quite a few, you know, black gay males out there, you know? Right, right. That's not the story. <laughs> no, it's not the story. And people have to be allowed to create things and, you know, sound like a broken record. So the last thing that I'll say is that, you know, we, we have to overstep bounds and we have to be able to be wrong and we have to be able to not be ourselves uh, in order for a creativity to actually work. Otherwise, you get stuck with, um, well, very much where we're at now. I don't need to create an analogy of it because go look at what's being published today. And I do often because I'm in the book world and I cannot think of the last time, and this is not hyperbole, I cannot think of the last time I saw a book published by a major big four, big five publisher that I saw and thought, I have to read that right now mm-hmm I hear exist. you I hear you and uh, I think that applies uh, across uh, genres and forms I mean I I've been doing a lot of research about nonfiction titles uh, and I, I look at things and I think well there are a lot of really interesting very specific subject non titles uh, I think the world of academic publishing which used to be you know a kind of leading edge is is just is completely dead in the arts, mm-hmm. humanities, and social sciences. I think it's very, very discouraging. But um, there, there's more to, uh, to go into this, but I, I think as a hint for where we might want to just think about starting uh, the episode behind the paywall is that uh, I did a, a good skull session with... Uh, my best student groups and we've come up with three points which are essential to the problems that we're facing and why the argument that today's uh, woke progressive cult, whatever we want to call it how it's different and why it is not an extension or a positive evolution from the 60s and 70s, despite many, uh, I think, legitimate uh, reasons to think that. 
These are three key elements that uh, you just can't get away from. And mm -hmm. I, I think that if we look at them, we've, we've spoken about all three, they're nothing startling. But if we say these three ingredients create a kind of toxicity that has made the contradictions possible today and has, they're behind this flattening out of all curves, this hammering mm -hmm. down of any differences and, and really making a bland concoction. Uh, I, I think that they're worth considering because those are the differences from mm -hmm. the, between right now and say, you know, 1968 to 1975. Mm. Excellent. That sounds like a great place to leave off. Um, gosh. No, actually, okay, I'll cut that little pause there because I was thinking about something. I think we should probably just end it right there, and I'll tell you this off mic. But uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Please do subscribe behind the paywall. Um, we have a lot of fun over there. Uh, we're slowly but surely amassing some folks that we are going to be doing happy hours with and all sorts of fun stuff. So do go over there. There's a $5 tier and there's an $8 tier. We're starting up a book club. We're starting to do courses. It's, uh, it's going to be fun. And coming up in this episode, right just on the other side of the paywall, is an ongoing experiment with David's mind, improvisational real-time challenges. And I've got to say, I really am looking forward to this one. It's a pleasure to see David cornered and working the walls. So yeah. join us. <laughs>